Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Welcome to the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. So on today's episode, we're going to continue our great year-end debate. To mix things up a little bit, we'll be talking about some of our favorite albums in two really big genres this year, rock and rap. To start, we have our news editor, Evan Minsker, and staff writer, Madison Bloom, here to walk us through some of their favorite rock albums of the year. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey there. Madison, welcome back. Lovely to have you. Evan, the water is warm, as <laughs> as Jeremy said on the last one of these. So one thing that has been increasingly difficult, I think, for us as a staff is to specifically genreify music. And with rock, it has been especially kind of infuriating and funny at times. During our year-end listening, we did these breakout listening rooms by genre. And in the rock room, it became so kind of confounding as to what landed firmly within the genre of rock that we started this ongoing joke of like, does it rock? And if it does rock, then it is rock music and it lands in the rock genre list. But the reason this is so difficult is because, you know, we have to consider whether singer-songwriters and folk musicians like Phoebe Bridgers or Waxahachie or songwriters like Bob Dylan land in the rock list. Evan, you were in those listening rooms. I think I was the first person to get into the rock room. Like, literally, I would log on and nobody else was on. So then as everybody would log on... I could ask people, hey, what's up? You ready to rock? Just every single person who had come into the room, I could ask them if they were ready to rock. And that was super fun for me. But I feel like there are these very weird fine lines that happen where some singer-songwriters definitely rock. Like the Waxahachie album is a rock album, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people had those kinds of... Well, this this album has like a lot of rockin' moments. The Phoebe Bridgers album was discussed as like, oh yeah, that there are definitely some rock songs on that album. Whereas with Bill Callahan, probably not really a rock album. You know, it's definitely more of a singer-songwriter album or a folk album. Let's start a family. Let's have a baby. Whenever we debate this question of is a singer-songwriter album a rock record, I feel like it would always sort of come down to this gut check, this thing of, you know, more than just does it have an electric guitar on it, it would be this question of is the music forceful, is it assertive, is it really full? So the Waxahachie album, I think, is an example where the percussion is really assertive and forceful and powerful across the board. Um, and then there are these big club filling guitar solos on there on songs like Hell, Witches. And I think similarly, Phoebe Bridgers' album Punisher, it has 
a lot of really quiet moments, but it's also comparatively, it's got these big, massive ones too. So I think that if you stack that next to like Bill Callahan's gold record, which is this very subdued acoustic album, I feel like you can make a fairly solid argument that uh, Katie Crutchfield and Phoebe Bridgers made rock records this year, or at least, you know, records that start to lean in the direction. Yeah. And because those conversations were some of the most ridiculous and fun that we had while working on the lists, we decided to try to bring them to the show. So today we're going to be comparing albums within the genre of rock as divided into kind of arbitrary subcategories. We decided that it wasn't really serving us to try to scientifically and narrowly define quote-unquote rock. Evan described rocking as parallel to the amount of sweat that you feel. And in lieu of all of that, we've decided to break this down into three categories, light, medium, and heavy. They are supposed to be vague because they are fully subjective groupings, and we are not interested in necessarily picking them apart too much, and instead, we want to embrace the vibe. So I think, Madison, you had like a really good kind of like scale for what was light, medium, and heavy. I think with this kind of discussion, some of the truth you can find is just from like your own body. Like your body doesn't really lie when it comes to music. And I feel like when you're listening to, I mean, any kind of music, but particularly rock, like you can tell how much something rocks by like the way your body is moving. So are you just sitting in a chair and swaying? Are you bouncing around a little? Are you like throwing pillows around and like wanting to be in a mosh pit like you might be dealing with heavy rock at that point so that was my thought yeah and i mean i i feel like i gave away your your version of the movement scale yeah i think about it in terms of how sweaty are you going to be at the show you know is it going to be a light sway is it going to be where you're not going to sweat a ton or are you going to be leaving this show just completely drenched. The more you move, the more you sweat. So with that said, with that extremely physical scale in place, let's talk about the light category. What are your picks for what would be the best rock albums in the light category? These are bands that you could see at a small intimate show. You could also see at an art museum. The show could also be seated, but it rocks. Definitely. Yeah. So my my pick for the light category um, of the three picks that I've made today probably has the least guitar sound on it. So my first pick is Heavy Light by U.S. Girls. It's essentially a solo project with a lot of collaborators attached. But this is also probably the album that has the least influence from guitars. It has a bunch of stuff on it. It's got vibraphones on this record kind of all over the place. It's got choirs. It's got these really tragic spoken word pieces. So, but I definitely think it's a rock album. Every time I see your grave, I can't help but think how I didn't know that you only drank. I like that you said museum because I would love to see U.S. girls perform in a museum because, I don't know, I think Meg Remy is uh, kind of that artist who does things that are very uh, theatrical and ornate and elaborate. So, yeah, I want to make the case for her being a rock musician because, because, like I said, this is probably 
the least rockin'. It doesn't, this album doesn't shred by any means. It's not like a, a wild mosh pit record at all, but I really love it. I think in the last three albums that she's made, I've really thought about her a lot as a rock star. It's that thing that, you know, David Bowie could do like a dance album, but he could also do a rock album, but he could also do all that stuff. I feel like she belongs in that same canon. And the other thing that she does that really kind of takes me to that sort of realm of the high art rock record is that she really incorporates other like kind of earlier moments in pop music and rock music into her own songs that she writes. So she'll have like the opening drum beat from Be My Baby. But my favorite on Heavy Light is the moment where she has a ballad (laughs) called Woodstock 99. And I think it's this beautiful, beautiful song. And in the middle of it, she just starts singing MacArthur Park. And to me, it's just so incredible because she fully owns that song all of a sudden in this song that's this heartbreaking ballad about Woodstock 99, which is a dark moment in pop music history. I love her voice. I love her songs. I love how intense the music is while also being super fun. Madison, what's your pick for the light category? Also disclaimer that Madison leans lighter than Evan. (laughs) Evan leans heavier. I don't know about that. I feel like my light pick is heavier, to be honest. It's true, it is. I will say in this category, you you have the heavier light pick. So I picked a record by Eve's Tumor called Heaven to a Tortured Mind. This is interesting because Eve's Tumor is classically, I think, been categorized as an experimental artist. And I think that this record is really their rock opus. Like this album, it has shredding guitar. There's like incredibly strong bass throughout. There are a lot of nods to like the darker, filthier sides of Prince and to early Marilyn Manson, which like could make a lot of people run away, but I mean it in the best way. It's just like this dark, gritty, like romantic psychodrama of an album. And the thing that makes it lighter, even though all of that description probably sounds quite heavy to me, is that this is music you sit with. It is arresting in the sense that, you know, it grabs your attention, but I don't think it's one that you want to shake around to. I think it's one that you really want to like sit down in the dark, sink into your like velvet beanbag chair or whatever you have and like just let this wash over you and kind of absorb. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think like Gospel for a New Century is um, one of my favorites. It's just like this incredibly heavy look into unrequited romance in this very dark way. This is a record where Eve's Tumor really came into their own as like kind of like a glam 
funk, like dark rock god. And yeah, I'm all for it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love the the thing that you said about how it's an album that you want to sit with, because even though there are like really big, like sort of stomping moments, it's still just mm. a record that you really just want to you really want to understand it and kind of vibe to it. Can I get your take on kerosene? Is that oh, a, yeah. a benefit to the album or a drag to the album? Ooh. Oh, I love that song. I mean, I think that's the definition of the beanbag chair song. It's decadent. Yeah, that's exactly it. All right. So let's move into your medium rock picks. And I think when we were talking about what designates a a medium vibe, we kind of thought about it as a project that had a full band. You know, in both U.S. Girls and Eve's Tumor's case, we were highlighting a band that does indeed have a band, but there's a true front person to those bands. And for the medium rock category, we're saying that, you know, this is a full-fledged band. It's a little bit louder. The spotlight is directed at the entire set of people instead of just one. Evan, what is your medium rock pick? Oh, well, for me, my medium rock pick, it's uh, 2020 by Magic Markers. It's that album where if you don't know what you're going to put on, for me, this was the one that I would just gravitate to instinctively. Like, I I would just put it on and then I would listen to it like three or four times in a row. For those unfamiliar, uh, Magic Markers are Alisa Ambrosio, Pete Nolan, and John Shaw. They started in the mid-2000s, and initially they were this really prolific noise band. They would release like five, six records in a year, and then they kind of slowed down, and their last album came out in 2013. Uh, So this is their first one in a while. And I don't know, for me, I'm going to sound kind of like a stoner when I talk about it, but it's like, (laughs) but it's just this unbelievable vibe because there's a song that opens it. It's called Surf's Up. It's this really sprawling, kind of like trudging, like baseline jam. And then this kind of wild, sprawling, Neil Young, crazy horse, hypnotic guitar jam comes in. Like this really, the solo that just really like spreads out. Elisa Ambrosio sings, surfs up on Titan, I'm riding the waves. And yeah, it's like, I'm riding the waves. (laughs) I, (laughs) I love just like sitting with this song. It's just, it's this great groove to just sort of live with for a while. Uh, So the B-side kicks in, and it's this song called You Can Find Me, which is this pretty concise garage rock ripper. And all the lyrics are super impressionistic, but it starts out with lyrics specifically about being in a mall at a Sears, strung out on Benadryl. You're in the Sears dressing room, and you're a little sleepy, and you think you might want to take a nap. (laughs) 
just to be real, like that is how I feel every single time I am ever in a, like a Sears or a mall or a department store with fluorescent lighting. Like maybe it's my age, I don't know, but I definitely feel like at this point I heard that and it's like, yeah, I I feel that. I am like I am exactly and it's just kind of great that it's this like really like upbeat song about just kind of feeling bummed out at like a mall. I love that this kind of sentiment that could feel like teenage angsty, like going to the mall with your parents and being stuck at the Sears really resonates with a man in his thirties. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I it takes me right back, you know. I've never had fun in a Sears. I think that's I think that's just the truth. Madison, what's your medium pick? So I wanted to talk about a group from New Orleans called Special Interests. I guess you could easily call them a punk group, but to me that's a bit too simplified. Um, It's like this great hybrid of dance and industrial and punk music. And to me it kind of reminds me of like if disco had not pissed off punk rockers so much initially and like they had accepted it, that maybe like something that like this would have come out a little sooner. But there are two songs on the record that I think really take it down from like a heavy category, which are called All Tomorrow's Carry and Street Pulse Beat. And to me, these are like almost almost like funk songs. They're like these slow struts that kind of feel like It's something to kind of like walk down the street and kind of flex to. It's really interesting that in the first two of these categories, we've talked about three bands that feel like they are adjacent to disco. It's telling that U.S. Girls and Eves and special interest are all bands that we've in some way associated with elements of not even disco music, like the disco aesthetic. It's interesting because I think it co- it all comes back to this question of like, okay, but does yes. it rock? Which I like, <laughs> like, like, again, it's, it's the tackiest thing that you can say. But if you look at Street Pulse Beat, it's like that is definitely a dance song that does rock. Like it is Yeah, it's like heavy. It is uh, intense in a way that rock music is, but it's also heavy and intense in a way that is incredible to hear in a disco song or in a dance song. Right. Well, then if we are going to lean into what makes something heavy, what is heavy rock? And I feel in, in many in many ways, this feels like the easiest to define. Oh, yeah. Right. Because it might just be the loudest. But Evan, what in your mind is the kind of clear distinction or vibe associated with the heavy category in this game? I think that my specific references are going to be being at basement punk shows or I I used to for three years in a row, I got to go to Goner Fest in Memphis, Tennessee, which it's just punks from around the globe all converge into the same room and they just you know, pelt beer cans at the bands and shove each other. And it's so fun. It doesn't sound like fun, but it's the most fun you'll ever have. And I feel like you can transpose that on metal, on hardcore, on so many other genres where it's about this feeling of very intense, kinetic, sweaty community. (laughs) Yeah. Madison, what's your movement association with the heavy category? 
it's coming from a similar place. Um, hearing Evan talk about that is making me so nostalgic for just like going <laughs> to shows that I have some pause for a moment. Um, oh, yeah, God. I mean, I think that for me, it's 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 music that affects you so much that it's not a choice what your body does. You know, you can't volunteer to start moving. It just it just happens. Um, and I think that that yeah, that's why. I mean, mosh pits grew out of this genre is because like it's it's totally involuntary mm-hmm. <laughs> to some extent. So on that note, Evan, what is your like rockingest of rock picks from 2020? For me, I think the album that I've had the most fun listening to the most consistently throughout the year came out in January. It's the debut album by a London-based band called Chubby and the Gang. This album came out on Static Shock Records in the UK. The new album is called Speed Kills. It's their debut album. It is really an incredibly fun record. It's really heavy, burly, fast, aggressive, fun punk music. It's also performed clearly like in this fully committed caricature. So the Chubby and the gang perform as though they are a very literal gang. So all of the songs are about being in a gang. They're just like a British gang who like, according to all these songs, they're just like running around, stealing cars, jumping the turnstiles, beating up the haters getting locked up for like five to ten years at a time and then coming out and doing it all again. I don't know. For me, that's kind of what the charm of this band is, is it's really aggressive burly music but it's like also very happy music it's very Mm -hmm. it's very cheerfully like Mm -hmm. scummy i guess it does feel cheery the other thing that i love about this band is that you know so rock and roll has this great history this long storied history of bands deciding hey we're gonna write our own theme song like the monkeys have a theme song Devo have a theme song. And Chubby and the Gang on this album have two theme songs. There's the first one is called Chubby and the Gang Rule Okay. And the second one, (laughs) (laughs) the second one is called The Rise and Fall of the Gang. And they're both like... They've already fallen? Well, honestly, the second song song is is a tragedy because they do, like, the first song is like, yeah, you know, like, I've got the lyric sheet here. Like, (laughs) they're, they're basically saying like, hey, we're, you know, we ain't done, we're on the run. Chaos is the reason we're having fun. And then the second one, The Rise and Fall is like the what would really happen where they're like oh you know we're really hungry all the time and that's why we steal and now we're in jail but we got to keep doing it because we don't have opportunities so it's like the reality the grim reality of what it means to have to steal in order to eat it's this like it's very you know les miserables or something like that Madison, what is your your version of Speed Kills? 
Well, one thing that I think is really enjoyable is I feel like Evan and I have both picked not similar, like they don't sound the same, but we both chose records that like are very fun and that supplied a lot of joy for us. So mine is Jeff Rosenstock's new record, No Dream. Jeff Rosenstock is someone that I I was not always like super into. I'm not like a huge pop punk person, um, but something about this record just like completely caught my attention. It's super fun. It's super, it's very immediate. It's approachable. Um, This is like a very fast record, but it's also incredibly melodic. So it's not quite as heavy as like, you know, maybe like a metal album. But the thing that I find most enjoyable about Jeff Rosenstock's music is that, you know, he's a very earnest and um, sincere songwriter, but he doesn't, he's not without humor. Like one of my favorite songs on the record is a track called B&B. And he's really just like singing about how like someone is renting out their daughter's apartment on Airbnb without telling their daughter, which is like a very specific, strange thing to sing about, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) But it's one of my favorite songs because he has these hilarious lines in it. And I mean, one of my like qualifications for like, what is good rock music at this level is like, do you want to shout along with it? Like, do you want to, sh- do you have, are there lyrics that you're just like shouting along to and shaking your fists along with? And this is for all you New Yorkers who probably know what this means. But uh, he says, massage place in the building. We know what's the <laughs> fucking deal. Yeah, I shout it every time I hear it. Massage place in the building. We know what's the And yeah, I don't know. I think that one of the great things about like heavier rock music is like you're not always going to it for some like deep introspective moment. It's like sometimes, you know what? It's just a massage place. It's a little sketchy. And like, that's all it is. I'm not writing like volumes of notes about what that means. I know what it means. <laughs> like, and <laughs> I like, I just appreciate, yeah, the sense of humor that he approaches writing with. Yeah. I mean, I was never a big Jeff Rosenstock person, um, I got to say. And this album really did it for me, too. Like, you see him swing between hardcore and like real wannabe classic rock songwriting, like pop purist songwriting. And in the middle is like screaming jokes along the way, you know? I also think it's interesting that the heavy set is all things that feel like a little more political or like shaking your fist at the man a little bit. Yeah, I feel like the Chubby and the Gang album is an example. Like while it is really like fun and like, you know, cartoonish and all that stuff. I do, you do hear a very serious, like, I'm bored of what cops and various authority figures tell me is the correct way to behave. And, Mm -hmm. you know, same, relatable, I get it. (laughs) Like, even, I, I think that it is a very valuable stance to take, even if you're taking it while screaming about, you know, speed and stealing cars and stuff. Well, thank you, Evan and Madison. This was really fun. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to do the same thing with rap albums with two more of our critics. (laughs) 
I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel. On today's episode, we've been talking about some of the best albums of the year by genre. And for this part of the show, we'll be focusing on rap. To run through some of their favorites are staff writer Alphonse Pierre and contributing editor Jason Green. Hey, guys. What is going on, Pooja? Hey, what's up? How you doing? In the last half of the show, we split up our favorite rock picks into these categorizations of soft, medium, and heavy albums. But for the rap conversation, we've decided to break things down by a completely different set of categories. We're going to do the best releases by the rap elders, which we can get into a little bit later, our favorite releases from new and rising stars, and then our overall best album of the year within rap. So before all of that, I just feel like we should mention that it's been such an interesting year for rap. Like while there were these huge disruptions to live music and touring and the record industry, there was still a ton of great music. And surprisingly, a handful of like very amazing albums from older rappers, like the dads of the crew. Al, could you run through maybe a couple of of albums that came out that were not, if not surprising, like interesting to see? I feel like immediately my mind rushes to the Griselda crew just because they had such an impactful year, elevating from a underground kind of niche act into hanging out with, like, Jay-Z. Griselda is a Buffalo-based crew. West Side Gun is the founder. The core of the group is Conway, West Side Gun, and Benny the Butcher. They're late 30s-ish Buffalo rappers who really have been making rap music for a long time. Just, just fucking listen, man. Let that shit ride for a second, man. Some of their music goes back to the mid-2000s, but have really come into their own and built like a loyal and core following in the mid-2010s to now. But just that their cultural impact was elevated this year. And so I was thinking a lot about Benny the Butcher and West Side Gun and their newly added Boldy James And even this past week, there was Rock Marciano's Mount Marcy. A lot of people uh, credit him with developing this sound that Griselda and other rappers have taken off on. When I think of Griselda, I think about how they're a perfect blend of two different eras, like a throwback era, 90s New York hip hop and something more modern. The throwback era is the grim piano melodies of like Mob Deep or the aggressive grittiness of, of a group like Bootcamp Click. And in a modern way, I think a lot about Atlanta trap music. The way Jeezy used to talk about his lifestyle, the way somebody like Gucci Mane used to talk about their lifestyle. And I feel like Griselda has really, you could tell they're influenced by both of those worlds. Okay, so let's get to your picks for kind of the best of the old school's return right now. Al, what was yours? Well, mine, going back to that Griselda thought, I picked West Side Guns Pray for Paris. Just because I spent a lot of the year thinking about what makes a good 
Griselda rap album because I've noticed that a lot of them are pretty good, but I never really had the feeling of like, this is like the Griselda rap album. This is the album that if somebody asked me who or what are Griselda records, what is the album I would show them? And I think Pray for Paris is that just because it is like the crystallization of the West Side Gun character. And me and Jason were talking about uh, West Side Gun and just how he's almost like this like wrestling heel type character who yeah. wants to make music that can play just as well on a Buffalo street corner as it can in like the Louvre or something. And I just felt that on this album, the character is the most over the top it's been and the music is better for that. Bingo, amino, Yeah, I just have a lot of love for these guys because I'm from Western New York and they're from Buffalo. Uh, So I have this sort of strange sense of hometown pride that these guys made it. And so to have these dudes who very much feel like Buffalo dudes, like I don't think they ever don't wear goose down coats, probably. I have to assume they're just always wearing goose down, like huddled around a garbage fire somewhere, are like now so popular that they're literally like hanging out with Jay-Z. It's just astonishing to me. um, And it's super endearing. This album killed me in particular because like his whole persona now, or at least on this one record that you spotlighted, was kind of like high-end luxury goods art dealers type. And he's like so not that guy like on his albums. Like he's such a grimy, like sort of really grubby seeming kind of, you know, like New York rap. Like, you know, it sounds like early Wu-Tang where it's like, you know, the entire street was lit by trash fires and like people were, you know fighting some sort of war. Like, that was way more the vibe of their music. And so I found it super endearing that this guy had sort of taken this, like, I, you know, I'm at art auctions. Like, doesn't the album open with a sample of this Christie's sale? Yeah, it opens with uh, the sale of, like, the Leonardo da Vinci, what is it, the Salvatore Mundi being sold at Christie's. So... It's, it's all stuff that, like, should be, like, really annoying, like, it's like the Kanye influence of like, oh, I'm making this rare right. art. I'm making this high art that nobody else can make. Everybody should like bow down to me. As the elder here, um, yeah, no what doubt. is your pick of the elder set? Well, I feel like I'm like perfectly on my mark here by suggesting J Electronica, right? You are you extremely know. on your mark by suggesting yep. J Electronica. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, it's true. So that's definitely my pick though. And his story this year of all like the weird surprising stories of 2020 of like rappers coming back from either, you know, long hiatus or rappers who've been making music forever, having their best year ever. Like, I think the weirdest by far has to be the reemergence of Jay Electronica from the wilderness. Like, this is a dude whose name prior to just this year was basically synonymous with like wasted potential because he hadn't released anything to speak of, you know, maybe a couple of tracks over the past 10 years. He had come from such a place of being anointed. This is this New Orleans rapper who kind of came at the tail end of the early 2000s, right? It's a dream, it's a dream. The flow's elegant like Miss Coretta Scott King. A lot of kings sing deaf and turn queen. Crack they 24-inch rims in the ravine. Respect the architect, never test the Elohim. Good night, this is JLX Live from New Orleans. And like your typical old head rap fan was so excited about the possibility that this person was about to make a world-altering classic. Mm-hmm. And then in 2009, he released one perfect song, Exhibit C. Oh. 
Nas hit me up on the phone, said what you waiting on? Tip hit me up with a twit, said what you waiting on? Diddy send a text every hour on the dot saying when you gonna drop that first nigga. And then apparently goes to sit on a couch with, you know, Erica Badu and play video games in the sweatpants for like a decade. Like nobody knows what happened to him. It's one of the only feel-good stories to me of 2020, where basically what happened is first he released this record called A Written Testimony. And while I feel like I should say I like that record, that's actually not the one I picked as my favorite. You know, apparently just like dropped everything he'd made up until then off a cliff. And everyone was like, oh my God, you know, we gave it the best in music. It's really great. It's like very weird and singular. It doesn't sound like dated at all, despite the fact that he hasn't been making music really. But then what happened next was even more amazing to me. This record that he never released called Act Two, Patents of Nobility, gets basically hijacked by an online message board who threatened to release it. And Al, maybe you can fill in some of the blanks of this story if I mess some of it up. But my understanding is basically they kind of held it for ransom. And he kind of checked with everyone who he'd sampled. And I guess because he'd released a record, maybe he was more internally at peace with this thing he'd been spending a decade making. And he released it on the music streaming service title. Which is another great moment to this story because the punchline, or what I've been building very slowly to, obviously, is that this is like the best record I've heard in a really long time. And it's, to me, so much better than a written testimony. And it's like almost infuriating that he's been sitting on this masterpiece and he's had so much doubt around it because it's just like... It's so good that to think about it being released when it was supposed to be released is enough to like mess with my head. This would have been like a sort of timeline altering thing because he was such a star at the moment. And this record is incredible because it doesn't sound dated at all. Like this stuff dates back to like the time when sampling Daft Punk on a rap song was still considered like a new fresh thing to do. And like there's no lyrical references that are completely out of nowhere because it's 10 years old. Like it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. Pressure makes me sour, but it's still a feeling. My human heart and all my senses say it's still appealing. I could be dead and gone, a brass band, a second line, I could be headed home. A passersby may shed a tear after she read the stone. One thing that has come up in conversations with us is whether this actually feels like an album that belongs in 2020's list because Mm. it was technically recorded and then held hostage to be released. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious about your general feelings on that. Like, does this feel like a 2020 album? A leaked album is definitely a 2020 album. Like, (laughs) like anything that is just comes out because it's almost forced out by fans or that is like the idea of like Playboy Cardi or Uzi. Like their music comes out like that too. That's true. And... So in a a way, it's kind of more modern than we know. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about the new stuff. Let's talk about albums from the the new or rising rappers this year. And I think we're going to classify this as artists who put out their first, maybe their second release. So it might be someone who this wasn't their like banger year, but shows that they really have a future ahead of them. And we're really excited about them. Jason who was your kind of favorite rising, emerging new artist this year? Well, I feel like I should start by just acknowledging that so much of my new rap listening now comes directly through Al. Like, I feel like I'm standing here as a person who edits Al's reviews. And like a lot of the new rap that I've gotten into is after I've read something that you've written about it. That said, like, 
I think one of my favorite things that I discovered this year, again, through you, was uh, Busy Banks, who's this Brooklyn drill rapper from a Trinidadian American family. He's from East New York. And I feel like he's part of this surge in energy that has been going on for a few years now. So he put out his debut mixtape this year, and it just instantly grabbed me because he's one of these rappers who just, he has a great voice, and he's got an incredibly intense demeanor on record, kind of like a baby brother Meek Mill. You know, he's kind of, seems like someone who... um when he's rapping, like in his brain, he's high-stepping through a field of tires. Like if he messes up, you know, something terrible will happen. There's this song on there called Top Five, where it's mostly just him rapping. You know, there's not really a hook to speak of until the last like 30 seconds of the song. But it's just full of quotables. It has like the freestyle energy, but it has like the replayability of a really good rap song. Love. What's a demon to a goblin? I was trapping, I was robbing. Every villain got a problem. And the whole point, right? Like his whole performance builds to this moment where he like wants you to believe that he's top five in Brooklyn. And that's like, first of all, the idea of being top five, dead or alive, like that's the usually like the really old sort of speaking again as as the elder, like like the number of boring conversations that if you're like listening to rap, you've been subjected to by like your you know, people who are your parents' age about like what the top five rappers are. It's just such an old idea. So to have this kid embracing this idea, there's something sort of beautiful and endearing about it in full circle because it connects what's happening right now to this larger and longer New York moment. And I also love that he's not saying he's top five dead or alive. This is his first mixtape. He wants you to believe he's (laughs) top five in Brooklyn right now. And like (laughs) something about that is so powerful, right? Like I believe him. I'm like, yes, you know what you've got going for you. You know what I mean? I love that he has an achievable goal. Very achievable. top five in Brooklyn right now. (laughs) Right now, exactly. But it also gives you a look at like their worldview of like the drill rappers mm-hmm. that nothing else really matters outside of Brooklyn to them. Right. That Yeah. And that was what made Pop Smoke's music special. And that's what makes Busy's too, is that Brooklyn is the center of their world. Yeah. And they they don't care about anything else. And even after Pop Smoke's death, like you, you said you felt like there was a surge. And I think there was a surge, but it, there was also a mixed bag too. There was a lot of mm-hmm rappers that came along that were trying to sound like Pop Smoke. A lot of people have used the same exact type of production that's got that like staticky, bass-heavy, 808 mellow type production that's kind of been almost killed. And I think with Busy Banks's mixtape, there's a lot of like refreshing production choices, just like with the vocal samples. And there's some things that make me think of older times in New York, some things that make me think of modern New York. Like even the top five discussion makes me think of... Uh, just listening to Jadakiss say that on the radio for like all my life that he's top five dead or alive. Al, what was your pick? My pick was a little bit different. It was a Flint, Michigan rapper named Rio the Young OG. I got, I got a thousand grams of Molly about to party with the college kids. I got another gun on me, you ain't robbing shit. We got enough walk right here to start. I picked Rio the Young OG just because that. Maybe 50% of the rap I've written about this year has been about Michigan rap. Yeah, the traditional rap city in Michigan is Detroit. And Flint is kind of just like a city that is like a small city, a city where you can get to like one side or the other in like 10 minutes. 
And it's a city with a very slim rap history. And Rio the Young OG comes along in uh, 2018. He was working a nine to five at typical Midwest jobs of like factories and auto shops. And this other rapper, PZ, hits him up. PZ's like a, a Detroit rapper from this crew called Team Side, who in the early 2010s kind of established what modern Detroit rap was. And PZ calls up Rio, brings him to, to the east side of Detroit. And Rio is there and, and he starts like releasing music at a rapid rate. And he gets popular in Detroit to the point where people think he's from East Detroit. And eventually a whole scene of other Flint rappers start to emerge around him. And I think City on My Back is just the solidification of that moment. Flint has arrived. And I feel like I, I love an album like that, that you could tie to this specific moment in time. On this mixtape, I think what I love about Rio so much is that everything he says is so darkly funny. And and dark almost feels like it's not enough to describe what he's talking about because it, it, it's like it's more like wicked or kind of evil. There's stories he tells on some of his like past songs and throughout the mixtape, like one where he had beef with this kid's father, so he went up to the kid and tipped over his bike. Hey, what up, crispy life? Seen a nigga son the other day and almost flipped his bike. I'm cold-hearted. I be doing shit for no reason. Hit him in his head and clipped his hands and shit gonna grow even. There's one where he's having sex with some girl. And her son keeps knocking on the door and barging in. So when he's leaving, he goes into the son's room, steals his video game system and sells it. Um, (laughs) This man out here just picking fights with children. It's kind of music that is only funny if you have like a very wicked sense of humor and are okay with it. There's lines that he'll say that are probably sometimes offensive and sometimes you're like, Maybe you should take this to a therapist instead of saying it on a rap song. And it goes back to what I was saying about West Side Gun, where you can't tell if he's joking or telling the truth sometimes. And mm-hmm. if he's joking, you'd be like, okay, it's cool. If he's telling the truth, you'd be like, okay, bro, we got a problem here. And so I think that's part of the appeal too. Albums-wise, I want to shout out this rapper whose real name is Brittany Moore. She's from Tennessee, and she performs under the name Baby Mother. And she put out this album this year called Motherland following a couple of EPs. And as a debut, it just hits so hard. Did you guys listen to that? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, I liked her stuff before, but what was crazy to me about this record was that it was like a concept record, right? It's like, it's like outcast Danconia style, you know, like coming from hell, right? That's the concept. Like the whole record takes place in hell. <laughs> I find it to be like a pretty bracing record, you know, just in the self, like she's in her 30s. She's had a crazy life. She's had two sets of twins, which in itself, like give the woman an award, but also the reclamation of a lot of kind of like despicable language used towards women is all over this album, like including baby mama, which is her moniker, but like people calling each other sluts or hoes or whatever else. Um, And it's so fun to hear in that song, Roaches Don't Die, which I think is like the standout for me, to hear a woman just like so 
persistently like tell people off in a really controlled way. The lyricism on that song, it's just so steady. You can't hear her take a breath. Right. I mean, you like really can't hear her stop. And she's going between talking about how her ex is struggling with depression and she recognizes that, but he's still chasing after women who are too young for him. And that's so frustrating. And literally pairs that with a line about how she caught her 11-year-old watching porn. (laughs) And I think the line is something like, I watched him learn how to walk and now we have to have the talk. Damn it, I need to teach him about consent. And that's like in the middle of this song about how her life is crazy and she's dealing with her like insane problematic ex. It's just like the perfect kind of like hard ass mom song. I love her. I think that this album is such a strong release. Well, that leads to to the biggest question of them all, which is what is your rap album of the year? My pick is Little Baby's My Turn and not the original version, the deluxe version. It really comes into its own after six songs are added in the <laughs> with the deluxe with, <laughs> With the, with the deluxe version. So no one ever. Like, <laughs> literally, it comes into its own when you add six songs to the 20 that exist. No, it's, 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 it's true, though. I would say at least three of the best songs on the album are on that deluxe version. The album is a mess in some ways. There are songs where he's singing about his middle school crushes over, like, those dreary acoustic guitars and not everything sounds great but the things that do and is more often than not are i think some of the best rapping of the year a love letter came through the mail it said i miss you i ripped it up and flushed with the tissue try to forget you i ain't got nothing against you we human we all got issues but i'm tired of being tired of being and tired. it almost feels like i, I feel like i call it like an all situation album it's almost it's almost like the feeling you had with some of the best drake albums it's where no matter what you're doing, it's an album that there's a song to play for it. There are a lot of like too long albums in rap and none of them feel like this. Like if somebody was to hand me the Oscar and said, play me something I like, I'll play a little baby song. Matter of fact, none of you guys get high as me. Whoa. Post my drip up daily just so they can see. Whoa. Turn me on some more so my haters can hear. And it's an album where everybody has different favorite songs off of it. and Throughout the year, my favorite songs have changed the more I've listened to it. Every time I listen to the album, I'm noticing something new or something something different. Maybe something I don't like as much as I did. Maybe something that I like more. And I feel like it's an album that I've lived with the entire year. And that doesn't happen that often for me anymore, where I'm just, just experiencing this album throughout the year. We Paid and All In are both on the deluxe version, right? Yeah. And those are two of the best little baby songs of the year, for sure. Yeah, I think All In is some of, like, the best rapping he's ever done. I don't gotta sell drugs no more, 
bossed up, got plenty business. Run around that lamb truck, I wreck this bitch, it ain't rented. Giving out my respect, get respect in every city. Niggas know I came up, but I came back through the slums with Diddy. Fucked around and got plugged in, I'm biting now. Little Baby can really rap. He doesn't sometimes get the credit for it. And Little Baby could, like, flex or boast in a way that will... That only sounds good when he does it. Even if he's talking about something as ridiculous as crashing his Lambo truck just to prove it's not rented for no reason at all. Or just talking about being courtside at a Knicks game. He doesn't even know any of the players or being in James Harden's house. And you could just picture like little baby's lifestyle. And that's, that's part of it. Jason, what is your rap album of the year? I mean, if I'm being truthful, it's probably the one I already talked about, um, which is the J Electronica Act 2 record. But I to mix it up, I'll add another favorite of mine. And that's this uh, this Brooklyn rapper, Ka. This guy, Ka, he's had a really interesting sort of career and life. So he grew up in Brownsville and he tried to be a rapper like in the early 90s. He was part of a group called Natural Elements. And then he was in a duo called Nightbreed, but like none of it took off. And so he stopped and he went to to work in the fire department. And it wasn't until he was like 35 years old uh, that he decided to try to release his music again. And he put out this super quiet, dense, um, moody record called Grief Pedigree in 2012. And like it got the attention of people who were really into like Rock Marciano or Raekwon or like really like classic sort of dark New York rap, you know, like really dense rhymes narratives that sort of twist around and you have to sort of listen really hard to follow them, like rhyme schemes that lock together in these complicated ways. That was definitely his vibe. And he's been releasing records sort of low-key ever since. Everything he does is super low-key. But really good. It's been low-key, but like consistently good. Consistently good, right? I mean, and I think that the the emphasis there for me has been on consistent. He really has built like a tiny little universe where only he lives in it and I've always loved artists that managed to do that. It's such an it's such a feat to me of confidence, first of all, like to believe that you're enough. I mean, and that whatever you have to say is enough for listeners. Like you don't need to add other elements, other things that don't feel at all um, organic or natural to you to entice somebody. Like it's just this, you know, pushing. Now he's pushing fifty firemen, sort of you know, rapping quietly to himself. There's something self-fulfilling about that sort of belief in yourself and that sort of, it generates a very real magnetism that draws people towards you. But like to be, talk about it more like just nuts and bolts, like he put out this record this year called Descendants of Cain. And again, it's like very much in the same style where um, the loops are like long. They're taken from what sound like old Westerns or samurai films. Even though the sounds ground the crowds now hover. Can't appreciate winning if one never fails. Played on games of chance. I got ahead of tails. It sounds like the interstitials of liquid swords set to beats. Like it's, you know, and half the time there aren't even real drums on these songs. Um, and then just him in this super low voice, he's the quietest rapper like in the world, um, just sort of telling these stories about his cousins, his his family, you know, poverty, growing up in um, really hard times and knowing people who sold drugs. A lot of the things that sort of make up classic New York rap, but there's like zero swagger in a Ka song. And the complete absence of ego in his rap is to me one of the things that I find most refreshing and beautiful about it. Like, he really just writes, like one of his lines is, we was living in the living room. Like that's the starting line. And it tells you so much in so few words about his living situation, what it was like to be a kid for him. On a writing level, I think that's amazing. 
We was living in the living room. Can't wait for it to come, need to get it soon. Cousin said he gonna get off the key, better get it tuned. My next weekend could be eating with a bigger spoon. And I think in, in comparison to what we were just talking about with Busy Banks, like there is this really vibrant scene in Brooklyn right now that is really centered around the drill movement and around a lot of young rappers. And to have Ka in the midst of it all, just kind of, you know, saying it as it is in a a very kind of conscious dad elder way is, is really admirable. It is. Like who else is doing that right now in New York? Well, and it's funny because he, he, he like, he precedes this whole scene and like another rapper might be interested in reaching out to some of these artists and recording with them or something, but that's so not cause vibe. Like you would never know from his music that there are any other rappers in the world at all, let alone in Brooklyn. I like how you brought up like the timelessness of it all, because when we listen to the little baby album five years from now, we will say this, that album sounds like 2020, but we won't, we won't say that with Ka. Okay. I have a quick fire question. Speak from the heart. No right or wrong answers, um, unless your favorite album of the year is Lil Baby's. The deluxe um, edition. <laughs> the deluxe edition. Um, what is your favorite rap song of the year? Oh my God, my answer is going to be so embarrassing. WAP. <laughs> I told you it's embarrassing. Nothing to be embarrassed about. That song had such a moment, and I still vividly recall the moment it came out. It was a time where no one seemed to experience any joy, right? It was during the summer of lockdown. And this like incredibly like graphic, like joyfully graphic sex song came out and it became like a huge like cultural moment in a year that was so starved for them. Now from the top, make it drop, that's some wet ass pussy. Now get a bucket in a mop, that's some wet ass pussy. I'm talking wop, 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 that's some wet ass pussy. Macaroni in a pot, that's some wet ass pussy, huh? The verses on that song are incredible. I'm sorry. They're straight up incredible. Nothing to apologize. Why are you apologizing? I don't know. Because for some reason, I feel like that answer is in some way not good. I did not take your no right or wrong answer to heart. I felt like that was the wrong answer. But that is definitely my truth. Al, what's yours? Honestly, I really love Coochie Scout. And I played that song so much this year. The Y&J song. Bitch pulled up with soy sauce like, where the sushi at? Where? I'm looking for a pretty cat like, where the coochie at? And he's another Flint rapper who has released a bunch of songs with Coochie in the title for no other reason than he's a fan of that word. I think Coochie Scout is the best of the Coochie songs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving this discourse right now. (laughs) It's it's produced by this Flint producer energy. You know, it's like a really thudding beat and it's kind of like very, it's very up-tempo. And Y&J has this style where he... He constantly pauses to growl or frustratedly scream or he'll mess up like mid bar and then scream and then just keep going. And I feel like (laughs) Coochie Scout is the best version of all of that. And two months from now, Y&J can possibly be very corny. But as of right now, I love Y&J's music and Coochie Scout is the best one. It's truly been a big year for Coochies and Wops. Well, on that note, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great. Thank you, Pooja. If you want to hear the songs we talked about on this episode, check out our Spotify playlist. It's called The Pitchfork Review, Music from the Podcast. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. 
Thanks to Evan Minsker, Madison Bloom, Alphonse Pierre, and Jason Green for coming on the show. You can follow Evan on Twitter at Evan Minsker, Madison at a casual female, Alphonse at L underscore Pierre, and Jason at Jason underscore Green. You can follow me on Twitter at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Zachariah Hughes and Rafara Mazarora. It was edited by Andy Kush, Zachariah Hughes, and Jonathan Hirsch. Will Miller fact-checked the episode. Our original music is by Andrew Eben of Basement Crafts. The episode was mixed and scored by Mark Bush and Rufaro Mazarura. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week.